0: Well, thank you, CJ. It's great to be with you guys today. I do feel like uh, I'm one of you. My wife worked at the college for a time. My daughter is here, another daughter hopefully on the way. And uh, as well, I have to do something before we open the Word of God together. On behalf of my father-in-law, he was a professor here at the Master's College in Bible and theology for many years. And in fact, um, some of you live in the dorm that's named in his memory. So, I have to ask, how many of you guys live in C-Dub? All right, great. Well, when I heard the theme of this year's chapels and the idea of life on life, I came up with a list of about 10 different truths that have profoundly affected my life from the time I was in college until now. In every case, they were truths that I didn't understand at the time that I sat where you sit, but I now, knowing them, profoundly wish that I had. Obviously, uh, there isn't time to deal with all 10 of them. There were truths like the centrality and sufficiency of the scripture, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the process of true biblical change. But one of the 10 really stood out in my mind. When I look back at my own spiritual journey, it was only after I really came to understand this truth and its profound implications that for the first time in my life, I had lasting and true assurance of the fact that I was in Christ. It was because of this truth, really, that the foundation for my spiritual life and growth was set. As I came to understand the truth I want to look at with you this morning... I really began for the first time to grow as I wanted to grow and ought to grow in Christ. It's as well the central pillar of the gospel. If this doctrine that we'll look at this morning isn't true, then there is no salvation and we will all die in our sins. It provides the only grounds that exist for gaining a right standing before God. It's the biblical doctrine of justification. Job once asked, how can a man be in the right before God? Another of his friends asked it this way, how can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of a woman? That's always been mankind's greatest and most important question. And of course, the most profound and lengthy answer to that question is found in the New Testament in Paul's letter to the Romans, but it's interesting because in Romans, particularly Romans 3, Paul argues that it was witnessed to in the Old Testament. And in fact, in chapter 4 of Romans, he, he gives two Old Testament examples, Abraham and David, to prove the reality of justification. Paul built his case for justification on the Old Testament. He essentially told the Romans, look, this isn't some new novel idea that I came up with here in the first century. Instead, its roots are buried deep in the rich soil of Old Testament revelation. So I want to turn this morning to look at this doctrine to the Old Testament. Uh, There are a number of Old Testament texts that deal with the issue of justification, but this morning I want to focus on one foundational passage I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. As you're turning, let me just remind you of the, the context of the book as a whole. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And that's really the major theme of the book. Yahweh provides salvation. And as as Isaiah unfolds that theme, he makes the point that Yahweh is going to spiritually rescue a remnant of earth's people from their sins, and he will accomplish that salvation through a unique person, a person Isaiah calls the servant of Yahweh. Now, in the second half of Isaiah's prophecy, there are four passages that focus on this person and his mission. These four passages are called the servant songs. The fourth and the last of these servant passages begins in Isaiah 52 verse 13 and runs all the way through chapter 53. So Isaiah 53 then is, the, the, is part of the fourth song about this special servant of God who is on a spiritual rescue mission. This fourth song consists of five stanzas of three verses each. You can see that even how it's broken up in our English Bibles. In the fifth and final stanza, verses 10 through 12, Isaiah explains the results of the suffering of the Messiah. Let me read it for you. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, there's, by the way, the reason for Jesus' death. He was presenting himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. There is implied the resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, Will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is what the suffering servant accomplished. You notice in verse 10. It pleased the Father. His suffering pleased God the Father. But from the middle of verse 10 down through verse 12, Isaiah explains the results of the Messiah's suffering that accrued to the Messiah himself. But buried in this final stanza is also a reference to us, to you and to me. Isaiah here explains how we as believers benefit from the life and death of Yahweh's servant. Notice the second half of verse 11. It focuses on the the life and the death of Jesus Christ and its application to you and to me. I want us to briefly examine that portion together. Look again at the second half of verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many As he will bear their iniquities. The theme of this sentence is found in its main verb, justify. You see, one profound effect of the servant of Yahweh's suffering is that by his suffering, he earned the right to justify. We can now be justified, we can enjoy a right standing before God. Now, in an amazing brevity, Isaiah teaches us in the second half of verse 11 four profound truths about our justification. These are the truths that have come to have such great weight in my own life and soul, and and my prayer is that they will for you as well. Let's look at them together. Four profound truths about our justification. The first truth is that the servant accomplishes it. The servant accomplishes it. Notice a person God simply calls my servant, my servant will accomplish our justification. Now, this doesn't surprise us because from the very beginning of human history, God made it clear that a special person would come to accomplish redemption from sin. You remember back in Genesis 3.15, God's talking to the serpent, and in Adam and Eve's presence, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head. A male human would someday come to deal with sin, but he would be a most unusual human because he would be the seed of the woman. Now, as the the Old Testament unfolds, we learn more and more about this special human rescuer that would come. We learn what nation he would be from, from the the nation of Israel, we learn what tribe, the tribe of Judah, we learn what family, the family of David, we even learn when and where he would be born. But the high point of the Old Testament revelation about this coming rescuer is right here in Isaiah's prophecy. Turn back to Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. that is, God with us. This is who this child will be. Turn over to chapter 9, verse 6. For the child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, This is the one who is the servant. When Isaiah says the servant, this is who he's talking about. Who is this? Well, we have it on the authority of our Lord Jesus himself that it's, it's talking about him. During his earthly ministry in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus quotes from the passage I just read from you, for you in Isaiah 53, verse 12. He quotes that verse and he says this. I tell you, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus said, Isaiah's talking about me. So the servant of Isaiah is Jesus Christ. He is the one who will justify Now in other places we learn of course that it's the Father who pronounces our justification. Here Isaiah means that Christ by his work would accomplish or achieve our justification. I don't think we fully appreciate, because many of us grew up in Christian homes, I don't think we fully appreciate how radical this idea is. Do You understand that most of the world's religions, in fact all of them without exception are based on human achievement you have to achieve. The Christian faith alone is based solely on the premise of divine accomplishment. There is nothing that you and I have to do, nothing we can do to gain a right standing before God. The servant has achieved it. He has accomplished it. That's a profound truth for us. There's a second truth we learn from Isaiah, back in Isaiah fifty-three eleven. And that is that a judge declares it. A judge declares it. When we talk about justification, a judge declares it. Notice verse 11 says, my servant will justify. Justify is a legal word. It comes out of the courtrooms. It's not really a surprise. Old Testament writers often use legal images to describe our relationship to God. The entire book of Deuteronomy is fashioned on an ancient legal document. When God confronts sin, he often does so in legal categories. Listen, for example, to Exodus 23, 7. I will not acquit the guilty. Exodus 34, 7, God says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God speaks as a judge and a lawgiver who impartially judges our conformity or lack thereof to his law. In fact, Justice is such an important part of God's character that he doesn't tolerate human judges who pervert justice. Listen to Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies, that is declares righteous the wicked, and he who condemns, that is declares guilty the righteous. Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. It's something God finds repulsive in his person. It repulses God when a judge perverts justice. So the only way then, and this is really important to understand, the only way a righteous judge can declare someone righteous is to evaluate the evidence And come to the conclusion that in fact that person has kept the law. That's the only way. The only legitimate grounds for being justified is truly being in conformity with the law. Now that brings us back to Isaiah 53 and to the Hebrew word translated justify. The word simply means to declare someone to be righteous. To be right before the law. In scripture Justify is the opposite of condemn, both used in legal settings. A judge evaluates the evidence, and he declares someone to be right before the law, that's to justify, or he declares someone to be guilty before the law, that's to condemn. For example, Deuteronomy 25.1, in a dispute, when men go to court, judges are to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. So to justify, then, means that a judge has weighed the evidence and rendered a just verdict that this person before him has kept the law. So in Isaiah 53, 11, whom does God declare to be in perfect conformity to his law? Whom does God, the righteous judge, declare to be righteous? Well, notice in verse 11, they're just called the many, But notice in the rest of this song how Isaiah describes them. Notice in verse 3, they do not esteem the servant of God. In verse 4, they're described as being terminally ill, metaphorical of human sin. In verse 5, they're guilty of transgressions and iniquities. In verse 6, they deliberately left God's path to pursue their own path. And in verse 11, notice they are marked by iniquities. Now, if you're thinking with me, and I hope you are, you should see a huge problem here. This is a huge problem because God appears to be doing the very thing that he demanded never be done. The very thing he said he finds repulsive. How can God, who never perverts justice, declare guilty sinners to be righteous? Well, Isaiah has the answer. And it's by means of the most important word in all of Scripture, the most important concept in all of Scripture, and that is imputation. That brings us to a third great truth about our justification. Imputation enables it. Don't be scared of that word. It's a great and rich word. Paul uses it many times in the New Testament. I'll show you that in a moment imputation enables it. The word imputation, the English word, is a, is a financial term. It comes from an old Latin word that means to settle an account. To impute means to credit something to someone's account, to put something in, in your ledger, to post a credit to your account. In Romans 4, as Paul expounds what justification means, he uses the Greek term that means to credit or to impute. In, in Romans 4 alone, he uses it 11 times. So clearly, to credit or to impute is at the heart and soul of justification. Now the words impute or credit don't, occur, don't appear here in Isaiah 53, but the concept absolutely permeates this section. In fact, what we find here is double imputation. We have two great transactions of imputation. The first transaction of imputation is God credits our sin to Christ. God credits our sin to Christ. You see, God doesn't leave our sins in our account even though we committed them. Paul puts it this way in Romans 4, verse 8, quoting David from Psalm 32. Blessed, oh, to be envied is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. And he uses the word credit. Whose sin the Lord doesn't credit to him. Instead, God credits our sins to Christ. Look at verse 11. By his knowledge... The righteous one my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The Hebrew word for bear means to carry a load, to put something on one's shoulders and carry it. That's what Jesus did with our sins. Not our sin in a general sense, but rather our specific acts. I want you to think for a moment about the sins that plague your life. I want you to think about the the struggles that you have, those recurring moments in your life when you choose to sin against God. If you're in Christ, as you think on the past, as you think on the present, God took those sins, believer, and instead of putting them in your account, he put them in Christ's account, and Christ shouldered them. He bore them on the cross. Notice verse four. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We thought God was smiting him because of his sin. That's why he was afflicted. But instead, he was pierced through for our acts of rebellion. He was crushed for our moral twistedness. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are spiritually healed all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all left God's path. Each of us, individually, has turned to his own way. I love the end of verse 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, literally, to strike him. It crushed him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins, Again, not generically. Your sins, believer, those sins that you are painfully aware of, he bore them in his own body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. And not generically so, he treated him as though he were you, He took your sins and instead of crediting them to your account where they deserved to be, where they belonged, he instead credited them to Christ. And on the cross, for those six dark hours, he poured out an eternity of wrath that those sins deserved. Jesus bore our sins. God treated him as if he had lived my life, as if he had committed my sins. That's the first transaction. God credits our sin to Christ. But there's, in imputation, there's a second transaction that occurs. God not only credits our sin to Christ, but God credits Christ's righteousness to us. The New Testament makes this crystal clear. In Romans chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, God credits, there's our word again, God credits righteousness apart from works. Again, credit is that financial term meaning to post to a ledger. In other words, God takes righteousness that isn't in our account, that we didn't earn, that's not ours, and he puts righteousness in our account as though we were righteous. In other words, this righteousness is not our own. It's entirely the righteousness of someone else deposited into our account. Now, this is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Justification has nothing whatsoever to do with any righteousness infused into me or produced in me. Instead, it is credited to my account. It's put in my account in the same way that my sins are put in Christ's account. He didn't become a sinner. He just had my sins credited to him, and then he was treated as if he had committed them. The same thing happens with the second part of imputation. His righteousness is placed into my account, and I am treated as though I am righteous. Now, the key question is, whose righteousness is this? Where does it come from? Well, in Romans, Paul often calls it the righteousness of God but more specifically, more directly, it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ became to us who believe righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, how? In him. In him. Here in Isaiah 53:11. Notice that expression, the righteous one. That is emphatic in the original language. It's, it's put in a point of emphasis in the, the way the Hebrew is structured. In fact, in the Hebrew text, two almost identical Hebrew words stand next to each other deliberately. They're almost the same if you look at them we could translate these words like this. The truly righteous one will declare righteous many others. You see, Isaiah is making a crucial distinction between the righteous one and the many. There's a huge gulf between the righteous one and those he'll justify. The one Possesses intrinsic righteousness. He is inherently righteous. The many, notice they possess only iniquities. But in this verse, and this is the heart of justification, an incredible exchange takes place. The servant bears their iniquities so that in God's eyes they no longer have them. And In exchange, the many receive the righteousness of the servant, the righteous one. It's like Paul writes in Philippians 3, 9, that we are found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law-keeping, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God as a gift on the basis of faith. You know, this is absolutely essential. The righteousness that is the basis of my justification is not my righteousness. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the crux, by the way, of what the Reformers meant by one of the great solas of the Reformation. You remember, solas Christus, Christ alone. You see, Roman Catholicism taught, and by the way, still teaches, that our God-enabled good works contribute To our standing before God. The Reformers said, no, that's a distortion of the gospel. Absolutely not. Our right standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with our own righteousness. Our only hope is in what they called an alien righteousness, that is outside of us. Listen to Martin Luther Christian righteousness is not a righteousness that is within us and clings to us as a quality or virtue does, but it is an alien righteousness entirely outside of us, namely, Christ himself is our essential righteousness. Our only hope is solus Christus, in Christ alone, deposited, that righteousness of Christ alone, deposited into our account by grace alone. That's our only hope. This is the great transaction. These two great transactions that occur in imputation. Years ago, I received my bank statement. This was back when they mailed them to you. I received my bank statement in the mail and, and I noticed that there was a deposit of $200 that I had not made. I knew for a fact this was not my money. And so, you know, as a believer, I felt compelled to try to make this right. And so I thought, how hard can this be? I mean, it's, it's in their favor. Surely they'll take their money back. So I contacted them and I called, spoke with several different people. I wrote letters. I had a number of conversations. And every time the conversation ended like this, you know, Mr. Pennington, I'm sorry. I know you think this isn't your money, but our records show that it is. It must be your mistake. So I gave up and spent the money. But at the time I remember thinking if I can get somebody else's deposits then maybe somebody else can get my bills. (laughs) That is exactly what happens in justification. I get all of Christ's deposits and he gets all of my bills. You see, justification is a magnificent exchange. Christ gets the blame for my sin. I get the credit for his obedience. He takes my declaration of guilty. I get his declaration of righteousness. He suffers the punishment for my sin, and I receive the reward for his obedience. Simply put, justification is this. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your sinful life so that forever he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' righteous life. That's justification. Praise God for imputation. But not all sinners are gonna be justified. Clearly, the Bible's straightforward about that. So what are the means by which some sinners come to enjoy justification? Well, back to Isaiah fifty-three eleven. there's a fourth and final truth that Isaiah teaches us here about justification, and that is faith receives it. Faith receives it. Notice how the sentence begins. By his knowledge, by his knowledge, literally the Hebrew text says, by the knowledge of him, my servant will justify the many. Now, that Hebrew phrase can be understood two different ways, by the knowledge of him. It could be by what the servant knows. By what the servant knows, he will justify the many. That's possible, and there are some who take it that way. But the other way it can be taken is by our knowledge of the servant. This is how most commentators understand it because of the context here, the application to our relationship to Christ. In other words, by our knowledge of Christ, we receive justification. Makes sense, because in the Old Testament, to know someone, to have a knowledge of someone involved more than than, what you'll memorize for your next test. Instead, it was a personal knowledge. It was a personal relationship, like Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare a son. So this knowledge of the servant is more than a, a head knowledge, it is instead a confidence in the servant and what he accomplished. It's the Old Testament equivalent of New Testament faith. Isaiah is saying that we can only be declared righteous through our knowledge of and our faith in him and his work. We receive the gift of Christ's righteousness credited to our account by faith alone. Galatians 2.16 puts it like this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Knowing that a man is not justified by what he does, but rather by his faith in what Christ has done. And faith, by the way, and this is confusing and it's something that troubled me for many years. Faith itself is not a work. Faith is not the grounds of our acceptance with God. God didn't decide to accept your faith in exchange for real righteousness. Never does the scripture teach we are justified because of faith or on account of faith. Scripture always speaks of our salvation as being by faith or through faith. So how do we distinguish that? How can we sort of grasp what that means? What is exactly the role of faith? Well, imagine for a moment that you were taking a car trip through the desert southwest. Why exactly you'd want to do that, I don't know. But just imagine for a moment, you're on this deserted, lonely road, and you have car problems. Your car fails, and now you've found yourself stranded in the desert. After a couple of days, thirst is beginning Significant thirst is beginning to develop. And over time, left unabated, you will move toward death because the body can only survive so long without fluid. And so you are literally beginning to die of thirst. But in answer to your prayers, someone drives past that lonely road, that deserted highway, and sees you. And they stop. And in their car, they have this large container of water. All you need to drink but you don't have any container in which to receive the water. And so they look around in their car and they find somewhere back in the trunk uh, an old cup. And they pull out the cup that's theirs and and they begin to fill it and you just drink cup after cup of this refreshing, life-giving water. The water you so desperately need. Now you understand that in that illustration, the cup, didn't merit the water. You didn't earn the water with the cup. And it was simply the means by which you received the water. And the person not only gave you the water, but they gave you the cup. That's exactly how it is with faith. Faith merits nothing. It is merely the means by which we receive the gift of a right standing before God. And according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God even gives us the cup. Faith is a gift of God. So he gives you the gift of righteousness and he gives you the cup of faith with which to receive it. So those four truths are the foundation of the doctrine of justification. But what do we do with that? What do we do with those profound truths. I want to take just a few moments here to talk about how we should respond, how you should respond, how I should respond to these four great truths about our justification. First of all, let me say that perhaps you're here this morning. I, I attended a Christian college. Part of my education was in Christian schools when I was growing up, some of it in public. But I understand that in a Christian school like this one, there are plenty here who don't really know Jesus Christ. That's a sad reality, but it's just true. So perhaps this morning, you are keenly aware of your own guilt. Maybe it's waking you up at night, maybe it's disturbing your soul, maybe you are crushed literally by the weight of the guilt of your sin. I understand that, I have been there, I know what that's like. You know you stand guilty before God and you would do absolutely anything you could to erase the past, to erase the record of your guilt and to gain a truly right standing before God, your creator. What Isaiah wants you to know is that there is good news. You don't have to do anything. In fact, there's nothing you can do Jesus Christ has already done it. The question is, how will you respond if you will turn from your sin and you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord by grace alone? The transactions we've talked about will happen in a moment of time. In a moment of time, if you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, your sins, all of them, will be credited to Jesus Christ. And on the cross, he will have died suffering for those sins, and God will in turn take that 33 years of perfection. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just come down and spend the weekend to gain our redemption? Because he lived 33 years of perfect obedience so that those 33 years of never sinning with his mind, never sinning with his mouth, never sinning in his actions toward others, perfect love for God, perfect love for others, that 33 years of perfection, God could take and he could credit to us as though we had lived them. God will do that this morning. The moment you're willing to turn from your sin and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, he will declare you to be righteous before him. I know for most of us here this morning, we're in Christ. If you're a Christian, how do you respond to what we've studied this morning? I would say don't ever lose the wonder and amazement of your justification. You know, we sing that old song written by John Newton, Amazing Grace. Don't ever get over the amazing In amazing grace. This is what God has done. Every single sin you and I have ever committed carries enough guilt, just one of them, to merit eternal damnation. God's eternal wrath and curse. But if you have truly repented and you have truly believed in Jesus Christ, God has issued a permanent, once for all, legal decision about your case he has said, that one who has believed in my son is righteous, forever righteous. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can do absolutely nothing to improve your standing before God and you can do nothing to undermine it. When God made his decision, and this is, this is the part that it took me a while to understand. When God made that legal decision about me, He was talking about all of my sins, past, present, and future. Knowing the full scope of my life, he declared me righteous. Tragically, today, there are some who claim to know Jesus Christ who have used justification as an excuse for their sin. If that's what you do, if you sort of say, yeah, you know, I'm with you. God's declared me righteous, so I can live however I want, Listen, the likelihood is you're not a believer at all because that's not how true believers respond to their justification. But on the other hand, many true Christians who take their sin very seriously fail to live in the freedom of their justification in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite cartoons is a Herman cartoon where there's a judge and there's a man accused standing there before the judge And the judge issues a declaration, and he says this. He says, I find you not guilty, but I'm gonna give you two years just to be on the safe side. Some Christians don't enjoy the reality of their justification because they think God is like that. Romans 8, one says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no guilty verdict No punishment. Romans 8 goes on to say, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who can condemn? If God has declared you righteous, who can condemn you? Here's my counsel to you. You know, I started by saying this truth has profoundly affected my own life. Here's my counsel to you. What I desperately wish I had known when I sat where you sit, Live in the joy of what God has done in your justification. Let it bring to you a lasting sense of assurance that nothing can snatch you from God. He has declared you righteous. And let it be the foundation on which your pursuit of righteousness is formed. Because once you understand what God has done, that he has declared you righteous, you love God. And you love his son. And you want to live to show a life of love to him. Not to pay him back. You can never do that. But simply because you love him. Because he, in his son, has declared you forever right with him. Let's pray together. Our Father... We're so grateful for what you've done. Forgive us for ever taking it lightly. Lord, forgive us for not understanding these truths, for not applying them, for not living in the light of them, for not believing you. Father, thank you that there was a time in my life when you brought along faithful teachers who explained this to me, and I'm so grateful for how you've used this truth in my life. And Father, my prayer is, That for those here this morning who are, first of all, not in Christ, Lord, may this be the day when you call them to yourself through the gospel. When you open their blind eyes to see themselves the way you see them. And that they would come to a genuine faith in your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The only righteous one. Father, I pray for those of us who are in Christ Lord, may we understand these truths. For those who already had a knowledge of this, Lord, enrich their hearts with this as we studied it together. May they live even more in the light of it. And Father, for those for whom it's new as it once was for me, I pray that that you would use this as the springboard to their spiritual growth and holiness as you did in my own life. Father, we love you and we are amazed. We are in awe of your grace to us in Christ, that you would credit our sins, those who hated you, who rebelled against you, to the son you loved, and that you would crush him for us. And that then you would take that perfection, those 33 years of perfect righteousness, and you would put it in our account, and you would treat us in this life and forever as if we had lived Jesus' life of perfection. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.